it's okay, I'm gonna get straight to the world word. I had a I had a cool little intro and stuff that I wanted to do, but I feel like it's important to just um, get straight to the word. Um, let's pray, Father God. Today, I realize um, how much division there has been in the body of Christ around the subject that we are getting ready to talk about. But Lord, I know that you are a God of unity and not a God of division. Lord, anytime there is division, we know that you're not in the center of it. And God, I just pray right now in Jesus' name that there would be no division around this subject of the Spirit of God and praying in the Spirit, but Lord, that our hearts would be open, our minds receptive, and that our spirits would reach out to you for everything that you desire for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So I realize as I'm getting ready to preach on this that there are probably four different kinds of people in the room. There are some of you that are like, yes, the pastor's going to preach on speaking in tongues. And uh, you guys should just calm down because this sermon's not for you. Um, there, there are those of you that may be here that you're like, what in the world is he talking about? What is tongues, right? So I'm going to help. This is for you. Uh, we're going to help understand that. We're going to define that by Scripture. There are those of you that are really unsure, and you're like, I've heard about it. I know about it, but I don't really know how I feel about it. I don't know what the Bible really says about it. So this is for you. We're going to talk about it. And then there may be some today that are absolutely opposed to the idea of praying in the Spirit, speaking in tongues. And some of you, maybe you grew up in a church that was very against it. Some churches preached that when the Bible was completed and the canon was closed, that um, the, the gifts of the Spirit and praying in tongues all stopped. Um, so if, if that is you, I want to encourage you. We're going to be looking at the Scripture, and I want to encourage you to be open-minded. Allow God to speak to you through His Word. Don't make it an issue where you're, where you're set in stone and you can't hear what the Word says, okay? So just be open to what the Scripture says. I'm going to use a lot of Scripture. Um, that way you'll know at least something I said was anointed. And, um, and then we'll just kind of see what God wants to do through His Word. All right, so Ephesians chapter 6 has been our primary uh, Scripture for this for this um, season, so would you stand with me? We're going to read this passage together, and then um, and then we're going to then we're going to go on to interpreting the word. All right, stand up. We don't usually do this, but I thought it's a good way to honor the word today. Ephesians chapter six. We're starting with verse ten. It says, "A final word: Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil." For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. How, how many pieces? Every piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor. Of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil and put on salvation as your helmet and take the word, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, verse 18, pray 
in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Now, the whole church said, amen. You can be seated. Let me just tell you real quickly my experience with the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Um, the pastor, when he preached, he preached with a ah at the end of everything he said. It sounded like he needed to clear his throat. Bless God. Ah, we're going to read the word. And when we read the word, we're going to hear something good. Right? How many of you ever been in a church like that? Raise your hand up. Okay, that's the church I grew up in. And man, he, sometimes we didn't even know what the pastor was saying, but it was good because he finished it with, ah, it's like an exclamation point at the end of every sentence. Ah, it was good. So we, we, we just get excited, man. We were an excited church. And at a very young age, I remember I was eight years old. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and I, I, I prayed in tongues for the very first time. I wasn't even expecting it. I guess you could say I was surprised by the Spirit. He just came on and did. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why I was talking that way. I I knew that I was talking and it was me doing it, but I didn't understand this language that I was speaking. And my whole growing up experience, I prayed in the spirit. And so you guys think I'm weird. I've been weird my whole life. It's just part of it. And so, but that gift of tongues, that praying in tongues is not a weirdness. There are a lot of great Bible teachers that you know and respect that pray in the spirit. They pray in tongues. It's a, a regular part of their, their prayer life. And so uh, one of my favorite guys that, that talks about praying in the spirit is John Bevere. How many of you guys have ever read John Bevere stuff? Man, he's got some great information, insights on praying in the spirit. And um, just love it. So I'd encourage you to look up his stuff. Listen to what he has to say about it. It's very good. So as we, as we examine, um, so let me further my story just for a second. As I went on, I was in children's ministry for 13 years. I was a children's pastor. And during that 13 years, I had the opportunity to pray with literally hundreds of people and watch them get baptized in the Holy Spirit and pray in tongues. It was an amazing thing. I don't know why God has been so gracious to me to allow me to pray with so many people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But man, it's been so neat to watch it happen. Um, on one night, one occasion, I prayed and more than a thousand people received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So cool. So cool. And if you've never been in a room, and most of these were young men but beneath the age of 16 years old, between 12 and 16, most of these guys, and just baptizing the Holy Spirit. And it was just so powerful to watch it happen. And so um, I knew, man, I can't deny this thing that I've experienced because it's so radically changed the way that I pray. It's changed the way that I intercede. Everything that I do, man, I pray in the spirit all the time. I love praying in the spirit. It's powerful. It's life-changing. So what happened to me, though, is 13 years ago, for the very first time, I became a lead pastor of a church. And when I did, I realized that I was responsible not just for what I believed, but for why I believed it. You know, there's a difference between believing something and knowing why you believe it, right? And so I had to dig and dig and dig and find out, okay, God, this is what I believe. This is what I've seen borne out in scripture, but I'm having a hard time putting the pieces together in order to be able to present it. And so I said, I've got to know, Lord. And for about four months, it created a real crisis of faith for me. Because I didn't receive a lot of great teaching on it, honestly, all the way through Pentecostal Bible College, I didn't receive great teaching on it. 
And I thought, man, if there's anything that Pentecostal Bible colleges need to be teaching their students, it's baptism in the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues, right? That's something that we need to impart well to our future preachers. And um, I loved my college. I thought it was a fantastic experience. But for me, I didn't feel like they trained me well in why I believed that. And so after about four months of study, I had a bunch of little pieces that came together. And ultimately, I was out in my garage one day and I was cleaning my garage. It was a total disaster. And I'm putting everything together and I was putting things in tubs and storing it on some shelves that I had built. And it seemed like as I was doing it, I was praying in the spirit and uh, I, I didn't really have a focus in my prayer. I was just praying in the spirit and putting things away. And as I did, every time I would put a tub away, I felt like God just locking in, in my spirit, what he was doing in me, teaching me, gathering everything that seemed like it was confusing and just spread out all over the place. It was literally what I was doing in the physical by putting everything away. God was doing in my mind and my heart with the Holy Spirit. And it was just like, man, this is what you need to understand. And so from that point, I've been passionate about preaching on the Holy Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit. It is not weird. It's not crazy. Do you guys know that there are 500 million people around the world that pray in tongues and consider themselves Pentecostal? 500 million. That's the second largest segment of Christianity besides Catholics. Second largest. That's crazy. And so as I began to process it and look at it, I was like, man, I really, really want to share this with folks. So turning your Bible to 1 Corinthians 14, there are really kind of, it, it's kind of a continuous deal, okay? Starting with 1 Corinthians 12, you go all the way through. 1 Corinthians 13, how many of you know what, the, what people usually call 1 Corinthians 13? It's what chapter? The love chapter, not the love boat, the love chapter. And so, love exciting and new. Come on, I want everybody. Oh, no. Okay. It's all on me. All right. So we'll just keep going with the love chapter. So love is the greatest, is the idea of this whole thing. And so as Paul's writing this, remember, when Paul wrote this, he's not writing chapter one, chapter two, verse three. He didn't write it that way. That came much later as people were assembling um, the Bible and making it in a way that people could easily reference parts of Scripture, okay? So as Paul is putting this together, it's just all one continuous letter to the Corinthian church. And these people, the Corinthian church, man, these guys were crazy. They got saved out of some insane stuff, came to follow the Lord, and they operated in the gifts of the Spirit exuberantly. Like they were, matter of fact, it's reported by some historians that the people in the Corinthian church would actually, as they were going through the marketplace and interacting with other Christians in the Corinthian church, they would often speak in tongues to each other and then get offended if the other person didn't understand what they were saying. So this is not a group of people that Paul is trying to convince, hey, speaking in tongues is okay. He's trying to give them some boundaries for how they do it, okay? And so a couple of things that we have to understand, and we're going to look at this um, very uh, as, as detailed as I possibly can in the time that we have. But first, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. It says, for if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to whom? Since people won't be able to understand you, 
you will be speaking by the power of the Spirit. So you hear Paul, he's, he's making a comparison here. He says, praying in tongues and praying in the Spirit are the same thing. What's the other thing that he illustrates here? That if you pray in tongues, people don't understand you, right? So this is so important, and I need you guys to understand that there are four primary uses of tongues in the Scripture. Um, I don't have time to break them all down very specifically, but you, if you read the account in Acts chapter 2, and let's flip there real quick. Acts chapter 2, this is absolutely an, a mind-blowing account of what happens to the first century believers. And this is what sets the groundwork for who they are as a church, how they'll operate, what they'll do. And so Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, says, on the day of Pentecost, and just by the way, the word Pentecost is not a weird word. It just means 50th. Okay, so it's not like some crazy denomination in the first century. It just means 50 days after Passover, this happened. Okay, so Pentecost is the 50th. All the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave him this ability. Now, this is a very unique experience. Okay, because this is something that the people are speaking a definitive language. How do we know that they're speaking defined languages? Well, it says so in the text. It says, at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. Okay, This was a way of saying, these guys aren't very smart. It's like, it would be like saying, these guys are all from the east side of St. Louis where I grew up. These guys just aren't very smart. Brad, oh yeah, we talked about, why is he speaking another language that fluently? I don't understand because we've been around him. He's not that smart. You know, this is what they're saying. Hey, they're just not that smart. They're from Galilee. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. Now, Paul speaks very clearly about this. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about the fact that this, there is a way that people pray in the Spirit that is a sign to unbelievers. He also talks about it in 1 Corinthians 14. This is something that we see happening here. It's a sign to the unbelievers, okay? And so this is so unique. This is not the normal experience of tongues. However, on some occasions, it does happen. I know that Pastor Mike and Loretta were telling me about an, uh, a time when they were in Rome, and somebody was praying in the Spirit at their church in Rome. It may have been you, Mom. And, um, and somebody on the outside of the building was walking down, and they heard them praying in the Spirit inside, and they heard it in their native language. And they walked in and said, you were praying in my native tongue. What? That is a sign 
to unbelievers, right? That's a sign to others, hey, there is a supernatural God and he's not afraid to work in ways that confuse you in order to get glory. That's cool, right? So that's the Acts chapter two experience. Acts chapter 10, we read, um, and Acts chapter 19, we read about um, people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and they spoke in what? Tongues. It's the norm for New Testament um, the New Testament church. We see them praying in the spirit. Paul says praying in the spirit, praying in tongues. He uses the terms interchangeably. So there is another part of this where we also see there is another public use of tongues and that is for the edification of the church. Okay, and we're gonna look at that as we kind of, I'm just kind of bullet pointing now and then I'll point it out as we read through the scripture. So there's an edification of the church and that's when someone prays in a heavenly language that's not understood by men. And as they pray in the heavenly language, somebody else will give an interpretation of what they said. This is not a translation. You understand the difference between translation and interpretation, right? Translation is what you do if you are at the UN, right? You got the little headset and you got somebody giving a word-for-word translation of what is being said. We don't want you to interpret what's being said. We want you to tell us what they're saying because we got our finger on a little nuclear missile button. And if we get a wrong interpretation, we might push it, right? So, So translation is different than interpretation. So what these guys are doing, and Paul encourages, he says, hey, When somebody speaks in tongues publicly in a public service, you need someone to interpret, okay? And then there's another one that we look at, and that's the private prayer language of speaking in tongues. That's when Paul talks about, hey, you pray in the spirit, God understands you, God listens to you. We we also know that you can pray in the spirit as a means of intercession, in a way of praying for somebody, standing in the gap for someone. I, I had an experience in my life where, where I was praying in the spirit for somebody at a very specific time, and I didn't know what it was, and um, they called me and they said, guess what, man, I was out, and I just missed getting hit by a truck. If it would have hit me, it would have killed me, but God spared me, and I said, what time was it? They told me the time was the exact time that God had dropped it on my heart to intercede for them. I didn't know the situation, but God's spirit was there, knew the situation, and was taking my prayer language and using it to make a difference in the unseen world. Aren't you glad that God gives us gifts to make a difference in the unseen world? This is powerful. All right, let's look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14. It says, for if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. So, so this is so critical because he's saying two valuable things. If I pray in tongues, that means there's a choice to be made, right? You can pray in tongues or you cannot pray in tongues. Some people, I think they're afraid to pray in the spirit or receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit because they're afraid that if they do, they're not going to be able to control it. And you're concerned, like, I'm going to be walking down into to Walmart, I'll be checking out, and I'll grab the intercom mic and just start speaking in tongues over the intercom, and everybody's going to be looking at me, and then what am I going to do, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You decide. Paul says, if I pray in tongues. So, and then what does he say? He says, it is a language, it's words that I don't understand. 
He says, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I am saying. Right? He doesn't understand. He's just making words that don't make sense to him. Does he seem to be uncomfortable with that idea? Why are we? If the apostle Paul, the greatest apostle that ever lived, says, I'm cool with it. Why are we stressed about it? Right? I think sometimes we are afraid that we're going to get it wrong. You afraid you're going to get your salvation wrong? Or do you just operate as a person who has crossed the line of faith by faith? By faith. You, you embrace the Spirit by faith just like you embrace Jesus by faith. You have to step into it, and God meets you there. God meets you there. Praying in the Spirit is something so simple, so easy to just step out and say, God, I'm going to meet you, and I'm going to trust that when I jump, you're going to catch me. That's how he works. That's always how faith works. Always how faith works. Verse 15. It says, well then, what shall I do? Paul says, I will pray in the Spirit, and I will also pray in words I understand. I will sing in the Spirit, and I will also pray in words I understand. Let me ask you a question. When you pray in English, can Satan understand what you're saying? Okay? When you pray in the Spirit, does Satan understand what you're saying? Thank you. No, he doesn't. Who do you think has a vested interest in you not praying in the Spirit? (laughs) Right? Well, that's his game plan. He's like, I'm not going to have them pray in the Spirit because if they do, I won't know what's going on. I don't like that. I like to be informed so that I can fight them. That's why it's part of the armor of God that we're supposed to put on, right? We're supposed to put on the full armor of God. All right, verse 16. It says, for if you praise God only in the spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you are saying? You will be giving thanks very well, but it won't strengthen the people who hear you. So listen to this. This is very important. What's the last thing he says in that, in that verse? He says, the people who hear you. So there's this idea that it's a public profession, right? Paul is making a distinction here between a public profession and a private grace. So there's a private prayer language that we use when we're in prayer that is us communicating with God. But when you're in a public forum and you pray in the spirit out loud, there needs to be an interpretation. And Paul's kind of making that distinction. And if you thought that there was only one way to pray in the spirit, it would sound like Paul's contradicting himself, right? Paul, what are you talking about? You just said we're supposed to pray in the spirit. Now you're saying we're not supposed to pray in the spirit. No, he's not saying don't pray in the spirit. He's saying if you pray in the spirit, you gotta make sure it's done in a way that the people around you understand, right? So here we go. Verse 18, I thank God, this is the Apostle Paul, the one that wrote one-third of the New Testament. That's exactly one-third more than you wrote, and this is what he says. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Don't you love Paul? Like, every once in a while, Paul's like, God, I'm so prideful, I'm so sorry, I, I do things, I don't even know why I'm talking like this, and then he's like, and I speak in tongues more than any of you. Boom, mic drop. Right? He's just like, he's so awesome. I love Paul. 
He's just so real and so transparent and so in your face. And he just, that's Paul. That's who he is. So he, he lays this thing out. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. So not only did he, he, he embrace this weird thing that so many Christians and secular people push back to, he did it a lot. Matter of fact, he uses this as a way to uh, kind of put a stamp of approval on his apostleship. He says, I do it more than all of you. And remember, he's not talking to a group of people that he's trying to convince that praying in the spirit's okay. He's talking to a group of people that do it in weird ways and a little too often. And so he's trying to rein them back a little bit. Slow down, boys. Let me explain to you how this works. But while I'm explaining it, let me make sure you understand. I pray in the spirit more than any of you. So understand that is kind of foundational to what I'm saying. See how this works? This is so cool. Man, I love the Bible. Don't you love God's word? All right, flip back up here to four, verse four. He says, a person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. It's interesting to me because I've heard so many people use this as a a defense on why you shouldn't speak in tongues. Like you shouldn't speak in tongues because how selfish do you have to be to speak in tongues? Because it builds you up personally. Paul seems to be comfortable with it because he says, hey, I pray in tongues more than any of you, right? So if Paul thinks that it's good to be built up and he thinks that he should do it more than anybody else, why do we use that as, as, a, as a, a way to say, hey, you shouldn't pray in tongues because if you do, it's selfish, it just builds you up. How many of you could use some building up? How many of you could use some building up in your faith? Right? How, how many of you are sitting here today thinking, no, I'm good. I'm built up as much as I ever need to be. I'm set. I'm going to go home and take a nap because I'm just so built up, I can rest on my built upness. Right? You're not, we need to be built up. And Paul says the reason God gave you this gift of praying in tongues is so that you can be built up in your spirit. It's food, man. It is so good. When, when I talk to my wife, it strengthens our relationship. If we were to get in a car and drive somewhere, we did this road trip this summer. And as we were driving, we talked a lot. And it was awesome. We had a great time talking. We caught up on stuff that we haven't talked about. We dreamed dreams that we don't usually get a chance to dream because we were just alone in the car together well, alone with three kids, in the car together, <clears throat> driving for 24 hours there and another 24 hours back. And during that trip, we got closer and closer and closer and our whole family got closer. It was a beautiful experience. And some of us get in the car, we're riding with the Holy Spirit present within us and we never say a word to him. God has given you this language, Paul says, to communicate directly with God, to communicate directly with God. You don't have to go through your mind. How many of you know that sometimes your mind is the weakest link, right? Do you know that your mind causes you more problems than gives you help, right? Sometimes your mind is your biggest distraction, 
I tell people all the time, I have O-A-D-O-L. That's attention deficit. Oh, look. I'd say just because I, I'm always distracted by something, something always comes across my path that I, and I just get distracted. And so I'll be praying and I'll get distracted with a thought. When I'm praying in the spirit, I never get distracted with thoughts. I just keep plowing, praying in spirit, knowing that the spirit is giving voice to my everyday groanings and sighs. This is so good. Now, if we flip back to our primary text, Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm rushing through so much content because I want to pray with you guys today, and I think this is significant. So Ephesians chapter 6. Go back to verse 13, because I want to read this again. This is important. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 says, Therefore put on every piece of God's armor. I want you to tell me how many pieces again. Okay, so then we go through the list. And we come to the end of the list, and I love how, I love how the guys that assembled the Bible have it broken up in, in a one-sentence paragraph, as if it stands alone. How many of you know the English language well enough to know that you give a paragraph to something, an idea that stands on its own? How many of you know that you don't give uh, a paragraph to a single sentence? A single sentence is not a paragraph. It's a sentence. You guys are following along. This is good. So what we have here in verse 18 is a single sentence that is set apart as a paragraph. I disagree with the translators on this. If we're talking about the armor of God and we're going through every piece of God's armor and Paul says, Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Why have we limited the armor of God to six pieces instead of seven? And why have we separated the seventh piece off to be by itself? I think it's because there's confusion around praying in the spirit. It's not intentional. It's just people sometimes, I think, don't know what to do with it. That's why I had such a crisis of faith around this back in 2005, because I didn't understand. I feel like God has really helped me to put it together in a way that makes sense for me, that I can wrap my mind around it and say, man, I love this. I I want this. I want this for everybody I come in contact with. I used to be, as a young pastor, a little bit embarrassed to talk about speaking in tongues because I was afraid how people would perceive me. And God arrested me on it and said, why aren't you concerned about how people perceive me? Why are you concerned about how people pursue, perceive you? Why don't you worry about giving people access to everything I have designed for them instead of trying to protect your reputation and what you think it's going to be? And you know what? I believe that preachers that preach everything in the Bible as God reveals it to them, God's going to bless it. You don't have to worry about your reputation if you're preaching God's word. God's going to take care of your reputation. You preach the word. You preach the word. I am so tired of being apologetic for the power of God. Why do we apologize for the power of God? Scripture says it's the power of God unto salvation. Man, it's the power of God that works in us. It's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That kind of power, resurrection power that he wants you to have access to. Who do you think wants to limit the access? Satan wants to limit the access. So all of the insecurity built up. All of the ignorance built up. It's interesting because Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things concerning the Spirit. 
And then at the end of verse uh, of chapter 14, he says, but if you choose to remain ignorant, then you will be ignorant, right? And so there's, there's this idea that Paul's coming to of, I'm going to explain it, I'm going to break it down, but if you choose not to accept it, that's on you, right? So he breaks it down, and then he says, hey, you got to decide if you're going to accept it or reject it. And so that's kind of the way this thing works. And that's Paul talking. That's not me talking. I'm not being uh, cocky or anything with that statement. That is just simply a restatement of Scripture. So when I think about this armor and these pieces, you know, I, I talked about a little bit earlier how Satan does not understand the heavenly language. And um, you guys remember, this has been years ago, there was this uh, movie that came out called Wind Talkers. How many of you have ever seen or heard of that movie? It's about the, the Navajo Indians that um, were used as code, um, code talkers in World War II. Nobody spoke the Navajo language. It was just a very isolated pocket of Navajo Indians, and nobody else understood it. And so they posted Navajo Indians throughout the, uh, the regions of combat, and they would just speak in Navajo to each other. And the enemy could not break the code. That was the one code that the enemy could not break the entirety of World War II. And it was so strategic and so critical for U.S. forces because they knew that they could communicate without having their battle plan intercepted. This is what God's design for the baptism in the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues, that's what it's designed for as a part of the armor of God. It's a setup for the takedown of the enemy. You are communicating with God and God's spirit, the Bible says, is directly speaking to your spirit through tongues. And so he's downloading things to you as you're offloading things to him and the enemy has no way of intercepting it. Now flip over to Jude, the book of Jude. It only has one chapter. It's right before the book of Revelation. Anybody know who the, who the person of Jude is, who he was related to? He's a half-brother of Jesus, right? He's a half-brother because they have the, the same mom, different dad, right? <laughs> Jesus was the only one. No matter who was born of his mother, he was only going to be a half-brother, right? Because he's got a different dad. So Jude is a half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, Right? How many of you would feel real pressure if you grew up with Jesus? Right? Why can't you be more like your brother? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like, that, that's a lot of pressure, you know? Why can't you be more like Jesus? And so that's, that's kind of what he's doing. Uh, but Jude, I always think, man, when James writes and Jude writes, I pay very special attention because I always think... How much would my brother have to do to convince me that he's the son of God? Any of you have siblings? What would they have to do to convince you that they're the Messiah of God? It takes some doing, right? So when you look at Jude and you look at James, I think this is probably the greatest possible argument in favor of the Messiahship of Jesus is the fact that his brothers and his family all said, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah of God and we're so willing to believe that and state that, that we're willing to die a martyr's death, proclaiming that our brother is Lord. Wow. 
Anybody that doesn't believe that Jesus is Lord should really take a hard look at that because that alone is a huge, huge, huge polemic to the fact that Jesus really is who he says he is. So what does Jude say? Verse 20. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith and pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. What's Jude say you're supposed to do? Pray in the Spirit. What's Paul say praying in the Spirit is? Praying in tongues, all right? Come on, y'all are a little slow on this, but that's all right. I'm trying to break it down for you. I want you to hear it. I remember when... um, when the kids were growing up and um, Daniel was not able to talk and um, and Gracie would often try to tell me what he was saying because she spoke Daniel better than I did. <laughs> and I didn't understand him. And I remember I was feeding him one time and I, Daniel had this little thing that he would do when he didn't like something. He'd go, huh! and he'd just twist his arm and say, huh! like shaking his fist at the world, no, you know, and um, I remember I'm feeding him some, he, we were trying different baby foods um, with him, and we're giving him all these different foods, and, and we're giving him sweet potatoes and carrots and peas and different meats and stuff, and I remember I'm giving him some green beans, and he's going, and, uh, and Gracie says he, he wants the sweet potatoes, and I said, please, and so I gave him some more green beans. And then I switched over, gave him some turkey because I was going to illustrate to Gracie that she did not know what I knew because I'm the dad, right? I got this, girl. How many kids you raised? You don't know. Come on. And so, so I go hit, and I, finally I get around. I tried everything we had, and he, and I gave him the sweet potatoes. He went, hmm. See, he was speaking in tongues. She was interpreting. It was, it was one of those things. I didn't get it, but she got it. And so, so Paul, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, he makes a statement. He says, if I pray in tongues. And so when, when we make this decision to pray in tongues, we do so by faith. It is a faith act. And, and so many times, I, I don't know why we've added all the weirdness to praying in tongues. Doesn't it seem like a supernatural God would act in the supernatural? Why do we expect that a supernatural God would only interact with us by natural means? Does that seem weird to anybody else? Of course it seems weird. If God is not anywhere contained by the natural realm, why do we expect that his only interaction would be natural? What is it that gave the New Testament church such appeal? They operated in the supernatural. Not just in miracle signs and wonders, but even in the way that they loved each other. It was super natural. It wasn't natural. It's not natural for somebody to say, you know what? I'm not even going to have my house and call it my own anymore. Whoever wants to live with me, just come on. That's not natural love, is it? That's supernatural love. The the fact that Peter walked down the street and his shadow touched people and they got healed. That's supernatural interaction. When Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he prays, 3,000 people get saved. All 3,000 people get baptized and all 3,000 people are baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was the norm of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 10, 
Peter, who's having a little bit of a hard time interacting with Gentiles, shows up at the house of Cornelius, walks to the door, knocks on the door. Cornelius is sent for him, says, hey, brother Peter, you're here. We're so glad you're here. Why don't you tell us what's going on? Tell us about Jesus. Peter starts to talk and boom, they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit. The whole house, it says. And how did they know that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 10 tells us. They spoke in tongues. Acts chapter 18. Paul is on his missionary journeys going around. He shows up in the town of Ephesus where we get the book of Ephesians, where we're grounded here in this sermon series. He shows up in Ephesus, and the kickoff in the church of Ephesus is when Paul shows up and says, hey, boys, what kind of baptism you got? And they say, well, we, we've been under John's baptism. And he says, oh, man, you missed the big part. Check this out. That was just a baptism of repentance. But I'm fixing to talk to you about the baptism of fire. And so, so, so Paul, in this moment, reaches over, opens up a whole big old can of fuego, just dumps on him. The Bible says that he lays his hands on them, and they were baptized in the Spirit. And how do we know that they were baptized in the Spirit, according to Acts chapter 18? They spoke in tongues. When we are trying to um, build in the, you know, the... 50 cent word is hermeneutic. When we're building a good hermeneutic, that means a good sound interpretation of scripture. When we're building a hermeneutic, we look for patterns, right? And so as we look for the pattern, we're talking about the physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about the only evidence. We're talking about the outward demonstrable evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is it? Tongues. This is what we see all through the scripture. And now we further see it in, in, in 1 Corinthians 14. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12. We see it in Acts chapter 2. We see it in Acts chapter 10. We see it in Acts chapter 18. So we see this kind of narrative built around it. We see 3,000 people saved, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit on one day. Peter says, hey, look, not only should this happen today, but this should happen tomorrow. And it should happen to your sons and your daughters and all who are a long way off. This should be the norm. He says, hey, listen, this is what Joel was talking about. This kind of unleashing of the spirit is, a, is prophecy fulfilled. And it's access to the spirit in the way that Jesus predicted when he said, it's better for you that I go away. And so now we're left with this. To wrestle with, to understand, to process. And, and, and we get to this place, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dispel one myth that, um, how many of you guys remember that show Mythbusters? You guys ever watched that? If you don't, if you're not familiar with Mythbusters, at Thanksgiving, there'll be like a 12-day marathon of Mythbuster episodes that you can watch, so you can get familiar with it there. But one of the, one of the myths that I want to bust is this. I've heard people say to me on different occasions when I'm getting ready to pray with them for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Pastor, in my church... I was told that if I, I sought to speak in tongues, that instead of getting filled with the Spirit, I might get possessed by a demon. Can I tell you what? That is, that is a lie from the pit of hell. And I'm going to prove it. Let's flip over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking. How many think that Jesus is a pretty decent authority on things? 
Okay? Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus is going into the Wayback Machine, and he says, Yes, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So he's talking about an event that took place in heavenly places, right? Preached about this on the front end of this sermon series. He says, Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions. Walk among what? And crush them. Nothing will injure you. Is he talking about actual snakes and scorpions? No, he's just talked about Satan watching him fall. So he's talking about something in heavenly places. Listen to what he says. He says, but don't rejoice because evil spirits, snakes and scorpions, obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. How about that? You've got authority. Touch your neighbor. Say, we got authority. Now, one more chapter over. Luke chapter 11, verse 11. What's it say? You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Hmm, that's weird choice of words, isn't it? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a Huh, what an odd choice of words. I'm sure it's complete coincidence. Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So, So what does Jesus equate snakes and scorpions with? Evil spirits. And what's he say here in in Luke chapter 11? He says, hey, don't worry about getting an evil spirit if you ask for the Holy Spirit. If you ask for the Holy Spirit, you're going to get the Holy Spirit, not an evil spirit. So don't worry about it. And so what we do is we come to God in faith and we watch God work and move and do what he can do. Levi, would you come, man? I just want to pray and, and here's what I want to set the expectation for just a second. Um, as Levi's coming, we're going to talk about what I believe God wants to do in you. I've had people ask, and this is kind of a point of contention. It's even a point of contention with my own denomination um, that people say, you know, do you, does everyone who's baptized in the spirit speak in tongues? This is a tricky question to answer denominationally. I believe unequivocally that the initial physical evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. I believe it's borne out in Scripture. I think we saw it today. Everybody who's baptized in the Spirit, I don't believe, immediately speaks in tongues. And, and the reason I believe this is, is the case, and here's, here's the reality. The issue is, not whether you were baptized, is how do we know, right? How do we know? But speaking in tongues is the physical demonstration that that baptism has come, right? And so, so when, we, when we look at this, I believe that there are people who will come down to an altar and they will pray and they will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I can feel it on them, but there's nothing that I know for sure that they've done. Why? Because they're not speaking in tongues. Why are they not speaking in tongues? It's not because they don't have the ability. It's because they're not yielding. 
You have to yield to the Spirit in order to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit's not going to grab your tongue and start flopping it up and down, and you say, oh, man, I can't stop now. The Holy Spirit descends. That's his job. You speak. That's your job. See, we, we like the idea of the Holy Spirit moving on us when we want him to, the way we want him to, without us being responsible for anything. But God says, if I'm going to move, you're going to move. Because your movement is faith in action. Your movement is faith in action. So if, if you're here today, I'd like everybody to stand. If, if you're here today and you say, you know what? I'm not completely sure that I understand it all, but I do know this. If God wants it for me, I want it. I, I, don't, I don't know that I have a complete exegetical framework for speaking in tongues, but I know this. There's enough that I heard today to say, God, if you want it for me, I want it. If that's you this morning, would you come and meet me up front? I want to pray over you. I want to see you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's not weird, gang. And I know that, that it's hard sometimes not to think it's weird, but it's not weird. Come on. If you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, this is your moment. Come on. And here's what I want to do. I want everybody right now to just search your heart and say, God, Please look at me, and if there is anything in me that is unclean or unpleasing or destructive or, or causes me to have distance in our relationship, would you please, Lord, just take it away. Please forgive me, God. Forgive me for the things that I know I've done. Forgive me the things that I don't even know I've done that have been an offense to you. God, please work in me. Please work in me. Lord, today I pray that you would just seal this time. What a sweet, precious time, Lord. We felt you from beginning to end in the service today. But Lord, we said it at the beginning. We didn't come here to hear a message. We came here to see our lives change forever. And I believe that's the fruit of what's happening here at this altar today. So God, I ask that you continue your work in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. <laughs>